Hello and welcome to Lady Time. I'm your host, Jill McGregor, and my guest today is Elaine O'Donnell. Elaine hails from a very beautiful spot in Donegal in the northwest of Ireland, an area where they still speak the native Irish language. She moved to Galway City in the west of Ireland in 1990, which she now considers as much her spiritual home as Donegal. She studied for a Bachelor of Arts in English and Archaeology and then trained to become a primary school teacher. She now teaches in what is known in Ireland as a Gael school, where the children are taught through the Irish language. She is completely immersed and dedicated to both teaching and learning as she believes in tapping into people's multiple intelligences and learning styles. And so building relationships with both her pupils and their parents is very important to her. She lives in the countryside with her husband where they are raising their adorable son. Thank you very much, Elaine, for coming on my show today and being my guest. It's really good to You're have welcome. you. You're welcome, Jill. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm honoured and um, surprised that, that you've invited me on. And uh, I was listening to your podcasts and some of the wonderful interviews and the amazing women and what they had to say. Really enjoyed listening to it. Well, I'm going to enjoy interviewing you and to add you to all those amazing women. Um, we ran into, well, just to let our listeners know, myself and Elaine are longtime friends and uh, we ran into, we have a lovely prom here in the west of Ireland in Galway, big long prom, and people are out uh, walking it regularly, and it was a beautiful sunny evening last night, and I ran into Elaine, and in all the years I've known you, I discovered something new about you last night, <laughs> that you love <laughs> little, uh, uh, finding little walkways around Galway's city streets. So you took me on a little tour last night and gave me a bit of history of Galway, which I never knew in places I've never seen. So yeah, yeah. I know some of my friends who who have been living in Galway all their lives. When I meet them for little walks, we, as we call them the magical mystery tours, and I'll bring them to areas, little streets, little avenues down behind people's gardens we're not trespassing or anything but just you know I'm fascinated by fascinated by all these little hidden streets and lovely old houses and maybe little gardens and areas that you know that you don't even know are there until you're nosing about or you know walking about so I loved and stuff like that you know oh, well, that and was... I love Galway City so yeah, yeah, no, that was great. I tell you, I, I want you to take me on a few more of those little tours around. I learned so much in like what was a gorgeous walk as well. Um, so, Elaine, yeah. tell me, what was foremost in your mind then when you first approached midlife? Because you're now late 40s, aren't you? Yeah, I'm almost 49. Um, yeah, it's just, it's hard to... To describe what it's like it's not something I ever thought about really but having said that um, I'm somebody who's always measuring everything in time you know I always have a date and a year whenever I'm you know like talking to friends I'm always punctuating everything with the year or the month or the date and I think about time a lot so I suppose you know one major thing would be just the passage of time. And, you know, when you're younger, you know, you just don't think about things like that. And, you know, for instance, when I started um, like needing glasses, you know, this went on for two or three years. And I honestly, I mean, I am an intelligent person, but I honestly was convincing myself that the air in front of me was blurred. I used to be in bed at night reading a book and I used to sort of wave my hand in front of the air and go, God, there's a lot of blur, there's kind of wetness in the air. It's all very blurred. That went on for a few years and I eventually had to accept that, you know, um, my eyesight was deteriorating and, you know, I still haven't taken the step of going to get a proper pair of glasses. <laughs> But I'm at the stage where I actually can't live without them, can't read anything anymore without them. So, I, you know, so that's that physical thing. And um, yeah, I suppose, you know, 
it's with the passage of time when you're approaching midlife, you know, you're you're sort of becoming a lot closer to um to your parents as well. You know, when you're growing up, your parents are the age that you are in midlife, you know, generally, and all of a sudden you're kind of going, God, my parents weren't old at all because I'm only 49. So you compare yourself a lot to how your parents were, and there is a huge difference. Um, maybe that's something we can talk about. But um, so the passage of time, um, you know, that your own mortality is catapulting towards you quicker because, you know, like the longer you live, the quicker time goes. And my mother would often say, which makes me feel sad, that she'll often say to me now, she's almost 80, she'll often say, Elaine, life is a blink. And yeah, sometimes life does feel like a blink. But then sometimes it does feel quite long. It depends, you know, on, on the day of the week. It depends how you're feeling. So I suppose being aware of time passing and your own mortality and all of a sudden realizing that you're more than halfway through your life and you know you gotta you gotta cop on and start trying to enjoy life more and not get too hung up on silly things like work and money and mortgage and petty little arguments you might have with people and you know so those kind of things cross your mind for me, and I suppose for for many women as well, you know, that liminal stage from youth into midlife um, is very uh, important. And, you know, one thing I suppose that affects most women or all of us is that you're thinking of your own fertility, you know, that you go like you get to a stage where you won't have any more children or you know you won't have any children or you won't have any more children if it's something that you know you've been thinking about so that would have been something that I would have thought about a lot and had to come to terms with um I had my my child or our child when I was almost 36 you know and I do regret that you know I didn't have children earlier but it wasn't even on the agenda yeah <laughs> you know my 20s and most of my early 30s were young free and not so much single because I'm I've been going out with my husband since my early 20s but just um just wasn't really on the agenda and then all of a sudden you know you're sort of 37 38 39 and it's not happening so um that would have been an issue um what else I suppose I was just the physical um, oh sorry I was just going to say how did you uh, what kind of symptoms did you have when you uh you know did when your whole cycle started to change um what kind of symptoms well First of all, I always thought, no more than I always thought I'd never get grey hair or lose my eyesight. I always thought I'll never feel those kind of like menopausy things that other women feel because I was a person who never really um, had very strong or painful cycles, like monthly cycles. They were sort of, you know, not invisible, but it's, you know, it didn't really punctuate my life you know that much so I I assumed that it would kind of pass me by and I you know it, you know it wasn't going to happen me so um I think the biggest thing and the most distressing thing for me were those hot flushes um thankfully without sweating because I'm really dry person <laughs> but um this intense uncomfortable heat you know, like it only lasts for a few seconds, but you know, when you have a baby and everyone says you have to do your pelvic floor exercises, yeah, they only take a few seconds as well, but they're the most irritating things. They're just horrible to do. These flushes are like that. 
you're just in the middle of talking to someone and next thing your whole back, neck and head are on fire. And now I understand why so many women, when they, when they got older, not so much now, but maybe during our parents' era, cut their hair because you just want to cut your hair. You know, I always wear my hair up anyway, but it's, it's just horrible. And it goes on and on and on for years and it comes and goes in cycles. And I think for me, it's around, you know, Ju- July and August, they come back. So I've been having them for maybe four or five years. So I'm only 49, but I definitely would have started feeling those kind of things at around 44, which I think is quite young. Mm. Um, it is an early another symptom I would have noticed and I wouldn't have thought that it was a sign of uh, of menopause and Jill I'm not someone actually just to let you know who reads loads about these issues and really educates myself I'm very lazy like that I don't tap into like, like knowledge that I should tap into but I do pick up on some stuff. So one thing I'd have noticed would be constantly going to the toilet. You know, I might be out for a walk, right? (laughs) One of my little adventures, usually on my own. And honestly, I might have to stop six times. And go, like not eating. And yeah, feeling that your bladder is never fully empty. Mm. You know, Mm. so you're just trickling along and feeling that you always nearly have to go and so that's definitely a symptom another symptom um which really is quite distressing as well and I didn't really link it to menopause till I heard that it is a symptom is sleepless nights Mm. and you know I'm not one to bandy about the word anxiety but but I actually think you know, lying awake worrying about things is also a symptom of, of menopause and it does keep you awake and just not sleeping properly. Mm. I, I so, did find that as well. Yeah, I got, I, I'm, I'm not given to anxiety hugely. Um, I can get anxious about things, but I found there was more anxiety at, at that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's also part of getting older. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of older people, elderly people suffer a lot of anxiety and it's kind of it's kind of going unnoticed. And really, when you think about it, it makes sense, you know, that as you get older, you know, you may be more alone um, a lot of things change in your life. You may stop work, your children maybe leave home, your partner maybe dies, people uh, around you die. So it's no wonder that ageing and anxiety go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And it's important that people talk about it. Mm-hmm. You're right, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's something that uh, you, I've heard you mention a lot is uh, that ageing and mortality and uh, you know, in terms of especially, you know, when you watch your parents aging as well. Um. Yeah, and yeah, and that's the thing about midlife as well that you're noticing more of those things about your parents because when you're in your thirties, your parents aren't usually, you know, you know, almost in their eighties, but when you're in your late 40s or 50s, if you're lucky enough to have your parents around still, they're more than likely gone past that. You know, there's a huge difference, I think, I have seen anyway with people I know between early 70 and late 70. Okay. You know, or early mm-hmm. 80s. I think there's a huge physical difference and psychological difference mm-hmm. of people. So. Um, that's something that that midlife has brought to me. Uh, I am lucky to have my parents, but you know, they're getting older as well, and you know, that's a whole new chapter in all of our lives, in their lives, and then it affects the whole family. So it does. You know? It does. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah, it is interesting that because it's something 
that I look at my own mother and she's 78 and you do see them getting that bit more frail. And how do you see, um, like I've been looking at life and sometimes it's so, it's very joyful, but other times it's so, it gets very sad when you realize that your parents' lives are at the other end of their lives. And then you think, well, you know, maybe another 25 years, I'll be that age as well, or or even less, you know? Yeah. And I know, because yeah. I know you, you, you do think very deeply about mortality and the passage of time you mentioned earlier on, but you do think about that. Did you find that that, that that does actually come more to the fore? What have you, what do you think about all of that? Because I know you think about it a lot. Um, I've always thought about it. It isn't just now as I've got older. I remember even in my early teens and I'd be quite an upbeat person and, you know, good crack and that, but and, you know, I've never been depressed. Or but I do remember in my early teens worrying for a while about death and about my parents dying. And sure, they were only in their late 40s, early 50s. And it's funny, my own child, I think all children go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they, you know, like my own child is, is 12 and he has said it a few times as well. You know, like the penny dropped one day that when he realized that someone's dog had died, that maybe his grandparents will die as well. But, um, yeah, I do think deeply about that. Um, Because as I said earlier, I feel I am somebody who's very, very conscious of time. Um, I think about time a lot. I project a lot into the future unnecessarily. But I also spend too much time in the past. So, but I mean... That's the way I am. And so I do find it fascinating as well. And, you know, as um, as hard and all as it is to accept that, you know, people that that we love will die and we ourselves will die. I've thought to myself, would you want to be here forever? No. You know, I think um, people get tired of living and you can only do you know, we can only do it for so long and imagine knowing there was no end ever, <laughs> you know. Like, and I couldn't bear infinity that. Infinity and beyond. I cannot imagine that. But, um, you know, the concept of death, though, it's just, it's amazing really how, you know, for when babies are born, people spend so long talking about the, the uh, impending birth, preparing for the impending birth. But we spend so little time talking about our impending death when preparing for our deaths and planning for our deaths. And, you know, it's as much part of life. And it's funny, the minute my, my child was born, literally, two seconds after looking at his little face, my first thoughts were, these are the eyes. This is the little, this is the face, hopefully, that will be with me when I die. Because that's the natural way of of life. And people might think that's so morbid, but life, birth and death are so linked. And the minute I gave birth to my baby, I thought about my own mortality and I'm and I wish that he will be with me when I die. So now I've decided that if I'm privileged enough to be with my parents when they're dying, I don't want to be bawling my head off, roaring, crying, wallowing in my own self-pity. I want to be smiling and helping them, you know, across you know that threshold in happiness and celebrating who they are and what they have given me. And I don't want to be making them distressed with my distress. So that's something um, in midlife now that I want to sort of think more about and prepare myself for, you know. Mm. And I think people in general should open up the conversation more about, about death and, you know, about what they think, what they fear and maybe what they hope for, Mm. for themselves. 
I mean, you said to me once, Elaine, that because uh, that 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 that's that. What more can we hope for, but to have, you know, to uh, close this, the chapters uh, of various different chapters of life, but particularly the last one, with you know, literally to celebrate your parents' life or your life or whoever is the person is your husband or your wife, um, you know that just to celebrate that life more than to see the downside of it. Um, but you once said to me not so long ago that had you a choice of another career, you would be an undertaker. And nothing surprises me yeah, ever about you, Elaine, but when you did, you said, it's like, tell me about that because yeah. it's fascinating, yeah. It's not something I always knew about, um, but it definitely is absolutely true. And it's something that I have really realized probably in the last few years. And the funny thing is, and I'll, I'll go back to it in a second, but I have a twin brother and we're very, very different. We're very alike, obviously, in loads of ways with the same values and, you know, kind of outlook and that but we're very different tastes you know you know but everything we listen to different music and everything but he said the exact same thing to me he says he wishes he would love to be an undertaker and I suppose I came to that realization because um I don't know what it is um first of all I absolutely love graveyards I find them fascinating and you know, there's a graveyard in Galway City called Fort Hill Cemetery that nobody knows about, but it's down there on the docks. People drive past it all the time. And it's absolutely, it's a fascinating place because I love history and I spend hours going around graves, reading the stones and doing the maths. What age were they? Um, how much older was he than she? What age was she then when he died? Oh, they had this many children oh god and some of the children died um when they were babies so what age would she have been was she an older mother maybe you know it's all about you know society sociology social history so really it's about people isn't it mm. and mm. you know yeah like maybe this will this will be this will sound like I have this fascination with morbidity, but you know every Thursday when I when I get the advertiser, the first thing I do, there are two elements of the advertiser that I just love. One is Tom Kenny's old photos of Galway, mm -hmm. which I cut out every week. But the other, not that I love it, but um, I I'll open the um, uh, obituaries and I just read through all of them and I sort of wonder what the story is with the with with all the people and I just find it fascinating so I suppose with an, you know the whole career of an undertaker um it's actually it's a very sociable job you're dealing with people it's a very caring profession you know um it's really um kind of it's full of um ritual and tradition and culture and things need to be done right it's somber um and I think it's just you know you're rising kind of above your own personal kind of way of being and you're offering a service to people you're, you're there to do a job for them and to do it as respectfully as you possibly can, as tastefully, as, as diplomatically, you know, to make, just to make it beautiful for them and to help them along the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love people and I actually love working and I love nothing more than being in a social setting and I know funerals are sad settings, but when you have a job to do as well and, you know, reading people and communicating with people. So, yeah. yeah. 
That's, uh, that's fascinating. And, you know, that kind of segues in a little bit in a, a strange sort of a way. I was going to ask you, um, because, you know, when you, you're, you're getting older, you do often look back because you have this view back over your life. It's a vantage point. That, well, it's, you know, it's like you're rising up the hill and the higher you go, the vantage point is greater. Do you have any regrets? And if you have, how have you managed them and overcame them? Yeah, regret is a horrible thing, isn't it? I think anyone who says they have no regrets is lying. Everyone has regrets. They can be tiny, little, insignificant regrets. Maybe something you said to someone once, maybe a lie you told, um, you know, maybe just small things. They can be larger things. You know, I can't think of any major regrets I have because to sort of admit to your regrets as well is almost like um, saying that you're not happy with your lot and that you wished it had been some other way. So I'm not regretful of the life I've lived so far. Um, I'm quite happy with how I, I have lived lived my life so far. Um, how have I dealt with them? I suppose the folly of youth, you know, and we all look back and go, you know, I wish I had maybe stood back a bit and thought about my future a little bit more deeply and maybe, you know... <laughs> maybe looked at see it's hard because when you're young um your fate is almost mapped out everything almost happens like by you know the form your cao form what you put down where you end up studying the subjects you pick it's all kind of just leads to somewhere and as much as i love teaching and you know, it was always in my blood anyway, because my mother was a teacher and she was forever saying, Elaine, teaching is a great job. You know, I was kind of thinking, no, I'll be a journalist. And then she said, but well, sure, you don't read the papers. And, oh, I'll be an archaeologist. And then I realized, oh, God, that would involve sitting in a lab all day. I wanted that either. But I came into teaching later in life. Um, and I don't regret it. I'm delighted I did it. Um but I'm going off point here now, but Jill, how do you deal with regrets? Um, so as I was saying, everyone has regrets and I think you just have to shake them off and look ahead and say, you can't change the past, but you can, you know, not change your future, but you can have more, way more of a hand in, you know, what's going to happen if you just put some thought into it and, you know, make decisions and think think deeply about things that you might want to do and why you want to do them. So that's how I would deal with regrets. I would just shake them off and say, do you know what? So what? But it's rare, Elaine, for uh, someone, you know, like yourself uh, at this stage, not to have too many. So, you know, I would say you've lived well but you are a sort of person that considers everything as you go and as I guess you know you can uh, just sort things out as you go along I, I, I was just really thinking about myself do you know the one or two regrets that I had but I like that just like what you were saying you, you know definitely at this stage in my life um just dealing with the regret in some way, whether it's a psychological way that you deal with it or you go to a therapist and you deal with it or you just, uh, I don't know, whatever way, you know, but it's great to hear that you don't have too many, you know, and sometimes maybe it's just that you're accepting of your life. Sometimes a regret links into uh, that you just not accepting something that you did, didn't, did or didn't do, depending on what it is. You know, I'd love to ask you yeah. as well about your teaching, um, because I love what you say about um, how you like to um, deal with or how you, you appreciate the multiple levels of intelligences that a, a person might have. I was very taken 
with that, you know, and people's different learning styles. And what age do you teach again? It's what age is in primary? Well, I'm in primary school, so um, I'm in. You know, I was in the classroom for 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 lots of years, and then I went into special education, and I've remained in it. I'm in it now. Eight, eight or nine years. It's, you know, it's a different career in a way, um, and you're you're working with fewer kids, but then at the same time, um, I try and engage with classrooms and go in and work, like co-teach with my colleagues, you know, so that there's more of us in the room and more children will actually benefit from like reduced. Uh, people teach your ratio you know so you're going in doing you know literacy groups or maybe maths or whatever um but i suppose getting back to the multiple intelligences you know um in general you know people are so caught up with academia and you know reading writing and maths the three hours that's what education always was wasn't it mm-hmm. well funny. you know in the conventional sense yeah, but I mean, really, um, you know, education is completely holistic. And I look back at my own childhood and the kind of education I got in the days before major pressure was put on kids to do this leaving cert. We got a great education and we got a great secondary. I personally got a great secondary education you know, where I just absolutely loved learning English, biology, geography, music. And there was never a mention of the Leaving Cert. Maybe a month or two the uh, like before the Leaving Cert, the teachers would give you um, a test paper. But multiple intelligences, you know, um, there has been a shift in education, which is great. People are becoming more aware of you know, social intelligence. So that ability to really, really communicate well with people, really talk to people, you know. And there are children that have great social intelligence, language intelligence, people who are wonderful at expressing themselves, brilliant at talking, um, artistic intelligence, mathematical, musical intelligence. You know, it's, it's never ending. So it isn't just about literacy and maths. And you know, do you get, and do you get a good scope to be able to work with all those different levels? Um, absolutely. Yeah. Because the area that I'm in, um, you know, I've learned an awful lot. And that's the thing about teaching. Uh, you know, really, they should change the, like, the word to I'm a learner and a teacher or I'm a teacher and a learner because they're, you know, it's just it's like most jobs it's it's a job where you're you're constantly learning you're never going to know it all I think the day you'd say to yourself I've nothing more to learn you know it's I think you should retire or leave because working with children or you know like working with with people teaches you so much anyway but in the area that I'm in which is special education I've learned so much about you know, areas of learning, so, and areas of behaviour, so, you know, you've got, and ways that people learn, how, how they learn, you know, do they learn visually, do they learn kinesthetically, do they learn hourly, and really the whole education system, especially at second and third level, is really geared for people who are visual learners who can memorize tons and tons and tons of text and just throw it out in a three hour exam and a piece of paper. And it really angers me that, you know, that's the way it is because I, you know, I'm working with kids, you know, some of whom may have a language deficit and, you know, even, even the word language, speech and language, you know, people just think, oh, that's speaking. It's not, it's, it's um it's processing what's being said. That's that's your receptive language, and then your expressive language is actually how you actually talk. So you know there are children who may have um certain language difficulties, and we need to tweak how we communicate with those kids, and how we instruct them in class, 
you know, you have to sort of change, you know, you can't bombard them with tons and tons of instruction. You know, you keep it, you know, you have it reduced. You ask them, do they understand what's been asked? Could they maybe repeat it back? You know, you may need to use visual cues because, you know, they're not hearing it. They might need to see it, you know. That's just one aspect. Um, then, of course, um, you're dealing with um, perhaps children who have reading, serious reading difficulties. And, um, excuse me a second. Yeah, so it's just about children who may have, have difficulties reading to the teaching um, and the learning. It's just, you know, there's so much to it. Um, and I suppose then you're looking at maybe, you know, different behaviours. You know, some children that you're working with may have autism or you may suspect they have autism and, you know, you want to understand that more and, you know, perhaps the parents will decide that they don't want to explore that avenue any further and that's their prerogative, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes, you know, a parent might say to you, I know my child is different. I know my child is very black and white. I know my child, you know, isn't going to have a hundred friends, but I'm, we're okay with that. And that's really refreshing to hear because I think education, you know, in the last 10 years has been very diagnosis driven as well. There was a huge push to label children with this, that and the other. And, um, you know, that's sort of waning a bit now, which is good. Um, and, you know, I think we just have to take a strengths-based approach when we're working with kids and, you know, Think less about what they're what they're what they're not so good at, and more about what they're good at, and think think more about what they need, as opposed to what they're labelled as having. You know, just because a child is labelled as having dyslexia, doesn't mean that that child doesn't need some you know emotional support, maybe some movement breaks out of class maybe some art therapy, you know? Mm. So it's a very broad uh, way of working and very interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting because, I mean, not having children myself, I don't know what, what you know, I, I, I often, I never really have to think about, you know, how your children are being educated or any of that. Um, so I just sort of was happy to segue there into that because I'd say that a lot of our listeners uh, would have school-going children, you know, and it's interesting to get, you don't often get the chance to hear the, the actual teacher's perspective, you know. So um, although yeah. I suspected a lot of teachers wouldn't necessarily see things exactly the way you're seeing them, do you know, your approach to teaching Um is fairly, you know, wide and more expansive, I, I would say. Um, do you know what I wanted to, I'm, I'm also thinking of uh, going off topic a tiny little bit, just for our international uh, listeners, um, because you do speak Irish and you teach children through Irish. And uh, what, I mean, what would you say about our native language, of which I hardly speak a word, unfortunately, but uh, I did learn it growing up in school. Just like, just briefly, really, what do you think of the language? Yeah. Um, Irish is a really, really beautiful language, um, you know, that belongs in music and song and poetry, really. Um, you know, there you cannot translate it really into English. Um, there's schools, English um, is the main language in schools as, and Irish is taught as a subject. In Gael Scalina and in schools in Gaeltacht areas, um, teaching is done through the medium of Irish. So all subjects are taught through Irish apart from English, which is taught through English. 
So I teach in what's called a Gale School, which is a school which is not in a Gaeltacht area, as in, you know, it's not an area where Irish is spoken widely. This, these are schools that are set up in what are called Gaeltacht areas, so English-speaking areas, to try and promote the Irish language. So, you know, it's great. And, you know, the most interesting thing about it is that children are completely oblivious. You know, I've only had a few children ever. I used to teach infants and we have a system of total immersion in our school, as do many Gaelskalna, where you don't speak any English to infants. You just immerse them completely in Irish. And it's amazing how quickly they they just pick it up and because you know when when we're talking we're using our bodies anyway and we're expressing things it's not what you say it's how you say it so they'll you know like like they'll pick up on that but it's just interesting that um all of a sudden they're in school and the teacher's speaking this other language and I've only ever had a few children and they've usually been really quirky children who are a bit different anyway, and they say to me, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> what are you saying to me? You know, at infant level, most children are completely oblivious to it and wouldn't even sort of think, oh, she's speaking a different language. So that's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I suppose, though, um, I'd have to say that Irish is taught very much incidentally in Gaelskolna because you're speaking it all day and you're instructing the children through Irish but at the same time like any language it needs to be taught you know in a structured fashion as well you know you still need to drum in different phrases and grammar points again and again and again and model language for them so that they would speak it correctly you know and so you know it's mm. it's challenging teaching through Irish mm. Because most children are not coming from a home where Irish is the first language, mm-hmm. in Gaelskolna anyway. So, you know, it, it is an added challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I, it, so. yeah, it's, um, it, it is great that it uh, still is kept because, as you said, the language is really, it is beautiful and it is very visual. So, um, and I'm sorry I didn't keep it going myself but uh there you go i could still always apparently learning a language is one of the best things you could do for your brain as you get older as well as learning a musical instrument um elaine uh what's what's been your greatest challenge or what have you had challenges in life um that you've overcome um I don't think I I have yet had any major challenges in life um, that I've had to overcome. Um, I think Living is a challenge. I enjoy living, but we live such busy lives. It's a challenge to sort of do everything. And, you know, like everyone, when everything shut down in March with COVID, I certainly realised that I was doing way too much. I was, um, you know, texting people way too much, like running ragged, meeting friends, meeting deadlines. So I think the challenge is to, you know, to slow down and to to consume less and to sort of, you know, live a simpler life. That would be a challenge. Um, what else do I find challenging? Um, I suppose I feel that I project into the future a lot and worry unnecessarily about things before they even happen. You know, for instance, with with my son, I'm already worrying about when he leaves home, <laughs> that empty nest thing. And, you know, he's only 12, but, you know, it'd be normal maybe to start thinking about that when he's 17 or 18. But I've, I've been thinking about that since he was about six. 
you know, and feeling, you know, almost that loneliness of, you know, what will I do when he when he's not here? Myself and my husband will be here, but he won't be here. And, you know, so I find that challenging, you know, having to stop myself from projecting into the future and worrying about things. And I suppose... Um, Is there something that you're particularly proud of then? Um, with the life that I've lived so far. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to pinpoint any particular thing, but there's lots of different things, I suppose. Um, I'm proud of the work I've done, not even in teaching, but any job I've ever done. I've always given it, you know, 200%. I like working. I'm very kind of a busy person. I have lots of energy. And if I do something, I'll do it right. I'll try to do it right. And I definitely get that from my father. You know, my father is somebody, no matter what job he would be given, he would do it. He would throw his own bit of glamour at it and do it his way, but he would do it really, really well. You know, so... Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm proud of, of my own work ethic, that I'm a real worker and, you know, I'll try anything really and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll like roll up my sleeves and I'll work till the cows come home. Mm -hmm. So, um, and even in teaching, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm doing and, you know, making things and organizing things and just trying to see how I can do this the best way you know for the people I'm working with as in the kids yeah um achievements you know like you look at achievements and you think of things like you know having your own house and it seems a bit but you know we did create a lovely home here and I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of my husband for the lovely work he's done in the house. And, you know, I'm proud of all the nice sort of the way that we've put things together. Mm -hmm. um, it's beautiful. I love that know, huge window you have looking out on the green. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's so comfortable. Um, have you any hopes? What are your hopes and dreams visions for the future i know we live in a very very different world uh than we did six seven eight months ago but um what's your how do you see it panning out and how do you see your life panning out yeah you know you often um hear of people or you know you see in films people really want to leave a legacy i mean you know, i'm not that ambitious you know i'll happily just die off and you know be forgotten about but i hope that you know anyone i have been friends with anyone i've come into close uh, contact with We're losing you again, um, Elaine. Throughout my life that I've treated them well and that, you know, I've been... Did you... Okay. Do you hear me now, Jill? Yeah. Um, so you asked me what my hopes and dreams are. Mm -hmm. We just didn't yeah. hear that. Um, oh, okay. Um, well, I was also going to say that... Um, you know, I hope that I will have contentment in my life and be happy. I am happy with the choices I've made, that I won't have that many regrets. And I hope I can live more in the moment and not be worrying about the future or harking back to the past. And I hope that if I need to make changes in my life, because it's very hard to make changes, it's scary you know, maybe to change career or to change where you live or whatever, that I hope that if, if I'll have the courage to to make changes for myself if those changes are necessary. You know, we all know that there are things we should do, but we don't have the courage to do them. So, 
you know, I would hope that I sort of would have the courage to make changes if I, if I feel I have to make changes. Yeah. And I hope that I will have a long life. I want to live a long life and I want to be a nice old person. I don't want to be somebody who's (laughs) given out about the youth and, you know, the old days. I have a bit of a habit of doing that. So I hope that I will age gracefully with contentment and be positive you know, and be content with my lot and, you know, die die happily and pleased that I haven't made a mess of things. <laughs> oh, you won't have. And have you any nuggets of wisdom for the younger generation? Or any advice? I have loads of different nuggets of wisdom for the younger generation. <laughs> Well, shoot them out here. Well, the main one would be, you know, I think there's nothing more valuable in life than human connections. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's nothing better than talking to people, listening to people, meeting people, telling stories. And I think, you know, I'm a big advocate for oral language. It's the teacher for me as well. But we're losing the art of storytelling. So I think the younger people need to sort of engage more in talking to each other and talking to people older than them as well. When we were children, we had way more opportunities to, you know, go into shops and old houses and we had more freedom in our communities. We were sort of mixing more. I think children don't have those opportunities as much anymore. So I would say to to like the younger generation to savor the moment live in the moment you know don't be taking filming everything on your phone constantly constantly photographing yourself you know I've been to to 21st birthday parties and all the oldies like me or I dance into ABBA and all the 21 year olds are sitting filming themselves at the party but they're not really at the party Mm-hmm. or watching their friends at another party yeah. you know so I think life will pass you by and you're never going to have time to look at all those videos you made on your phone anyway so mm-hmm. live in the moment savor the moment and otherwise you'll miss the essence of living you know so that's my advice well that's that's great advice yeah that's really great advice and especially uh, you know the oral tradition you know of telling stories and talk which is kind of hard getting hard at the moment with uh, all of the lockdowns and that um, but uh, you know it really is true uh, you know to keep talking to one another and keep connecting. Um, Elaine gosh it's, it's just been great uh, thank you for coming on and giving me a whole hour of your time almost This evening, it's just been great. And to hear about teaching, especially, I just find that fascinating. Um, So thanks a million for coming on. And um, uh, uh, this is uh, Jill McGregor. Uh, You've been listening to Lady Time. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you did, please uh, share it with your friends. And uh, please share it also on your social media platforms and tune in to the next episode coming soon. Thanks very much, Elaine. Thank you. Bye, Jill. Bye. Thank you.